From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, on 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake, California. Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI. In Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM. And in Pallenville, New York on 102.9 FM WLPP. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And yes, coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, Of course, we are keeping our eyes on what's going on in Italy uh, as the numbers uh, keep increasing there after a strong earthquake in central Italy reduced at least three towns to rubble while people slept early Wednesday uh, with reports now that as many as 159 people have been killed and hundreds more injured as rescue crews continue to dig out survivors. 159 people dead so far, and that's just as we go to air. That number has been going up uh, over the last uh, hour or two. It continues to go up. I suspect it will continue to do so throughout the day and night. Um, The uh, scenes are described by AP as apocalyptic, and like Dante's Inferno, according to one witness, the uh, the town isn't here anymore, said Sergio Parazzi, the mayor of Amatrice. I believe the toll will rise, he said. It was a magnitude quake, a six quake that struck at a little bit after 3.30 a.m. local time and felt across a broad swath of central Italy, including Rome where residents felt a long swaying followed by aftershocks, and there were dozens and dozens of them, one measuring as high as 5.1. The hardest-hit towns were Amatrice and Accumoli near Rieti, about 80 miles northeast of Rome, and Pesara del Tronto, some 25 uh, kilometers further east. But the center of Amatrice was devastated, reportedly with entire buildings raised and the air thick with dust and smelling strongly of gas. Uh, AP reports more than 40 aftershocks, but this was a story from earlier. A woman sitting in front of her destroyed home with a blanket over her shoulder said she did not know what, what had become of her of her loved ones. It was one of the most beautiful towns of Italy, and now there's nothing left, she said. Too distraught to give her name. I don't know what we'll do. Agostino Severo, a Rome resident who was visiting Elisa, said we came out to the piazza and it looked like Dante's Inferno. People crying for help, help. Rescue workers arrived after one hour, one and a half hours. The devastation harkened back to 2009, a quake that killed more than 300 people. 
in, in a nearby area around uh, L'Aquila, about 55 miles south of the latest quake. Another hard-hit town was Pissarra del Tronto in the La Marche region. region. Photos taken from the air by, region, uh, by regional firefighters showed the town essentially flattened, flattened. Um, the Italian Geological Survey had put the magnitude at 6.0. USGS reported a 6.2 quake uh, with the epicenter at Norcia, about uh, 105 miles northeast of Rome, and with a relatively shallow depth of six miles. And that's what's important, frankly, in these quakes. Uh, the size of the uh, the magnitude is almost less important, as I understand it, than the than the depth of the quake. Is that correct? That's, that, that's as I understand it as well, that, that because it has a, you know, it's not as deep, that means that it flows more mm-hmm. along the surface. Sort of like, mm-hmm. you know, if you slap your hand on the water, you'll get deeper waves at the top than if you move your hand underneath water mm-hmm. when you're very far deep down. You know, it causes the concentric waves to flow out from from there, you know, and that's one of the things that earthquake scientists say is that buildings are generally what kill people in earthquakes, mm. not so much the earthquake itself, although they're definitely dangerous, but it's the buildings. And mm. being that this is a very ancient town, and I know that there have been some attempts to uh, retrofit the buildings that are there, you know, buildings that have been there for, you know, 400 years, mm-hmm. uh, there has been an attempt to go through Italy and retrofit many of these uh, old ancient towns, but obviously it doesn't quite reach everyone. Not many, not, yeah, not nearly enough uh, have been able to be retrofitted. Uh, The mayor of Accumoli, Stefano Petrucci, wept as he noted that the tiny uh, tiny hamlet of uh, 700 swells to uh, 2,000 in the summer months. It's a, a tourist area near Rome. Uh, he feared for the future of his town. He said, I hope they don't forget us, he told Sky TG24. So uh, that is a terrible story that is uh, continuing as we go to air today. Uh, it's getting a lot of coverage, uh, understandably so, in the media, but getting far less coverage. Uh, well, so 159 people dead so far in the uh, Italian earthquake, but more than 300 are dead in India as floods force villagers into relief camps. And I've seen uh, little or no coverage from the corporate media uh, on this. I've been getting, uh, you know, alerts all day, all night, actually, on my uh, on my iPhone concerning the Italian quake. But in the meantime, over the past three and four days in India, extraordinary historic floods going on that are killing hundreds and there's almost no coverage I'll let you decide uh, why that might be, but at least 300 people have now died in eastern and central India. More than 6 million others have been affected by these floods that have submerged villages, washed away crops, destroyed roads and disrupted power and phone lines. According to officials uh, on Tuesday, Heavy monsoon rains have caused rivers, including the mighty Ganges and its tributaries, to burst their banks, forcing people into relief camps in the states of Madhya Pradesh, Bihar, Uttar Pradesh, Rajasthan and Uttarakhand. Uh, this, according to Reuters, government officials in uh, Bihar or Bihar, I'm not sure how to say that, which has seen some of the worst flooding this year, uh, has almost 120 dead in this one town. More than five million are affected. 
And government officials said the uh, situation continues continues to be serious. The floodwaters have engulfed low-lying areas, homes, and fields of crops, according to Zafar Rakib, a district magistrate of Katihar, which is among 24 of the, of uh, Bihar's 20. I'm sorry, 38 districts that have been hit by the deluge. In neighboring uh, Uttar Pradesh, where 43 people have died and more than one million others are affected, schools were closed as both the Ganges and the Yamuna River crossed dangerous levels and uh, floodwaters continue to rise today. The holy city of Varanasi, to which thousands of Hindus flock daily, was also forced to halt cremations along the banks of the uh, sacred Ganges River, forcing families to cremate their relatives on the uh, on the terrace roofs of nearby houses, according to officials. Pictures showed villagers wading waist deep in floodwaters with their livestock, mud and brick homes collapsing and people climbing into wooden boats to get to relief camps. We are all worried about what we should do for the last four days. We have lived like this, said Doda Yadav. We don't even have any food to eat. For the last four days, this has been going on, Desi Doyen. Um, and it's a, a, a blink of an eye at best here in the uh, in the corporate uh, U.S. media. Well, one thing that I had seen was uh, the CEO of Save the Children, uh, who is active there. The Save the Children Foundation is active in trying to assist with the relief efforts. He said, you know, because this is chronic, you know, the monsoon rains come every year, yet every year the flooding is getting more worse and more intense. And worse and worse. You know, in the last uh, two to three years, there have been record floods and mm-hmm. record numbers of people not not only displaced, but record numbers of deaths. And he said because it's chronic, it kind of doesn't really get the attention. It's not as new and fresh for the uh, international media, the Western media, to pay attention to. Well, it should be, as it's getting worse, as it's getting worse in India. I mean, obviously, you can't do anything about the earthquakes. uh, But when it comes to these uh, these, floods like this, these warning signs, and I, obviously this beyond warning signs at this point with uh, more than 300 dead in this uh, one event alone. Um, but, you know, these warning signs are coming up more and more and more. We're seeing more floods like this all over the world, including here in the U.S., where we've been reporting on the, uh, uh, these, uh, the, the Louisiana flooding that was just extraordinary, that was just historic. As we went to air yesterday, President Obama was... Uh, just beginning to speak in uh, in Baton Rouge uh, after touring the flood sites. Uh, here's a little bit more of uh, well, here's a little bit of what he had to say uh, after touring those sites in uh, in Baton Rouge on Tuesday. Sometimes when these kinds of things happen, it, it can seem a little bit too much to bear. But what I want the people of Louisiana to know is that you're not alone on this. Even after the TV cameras leave, the whole country is going to continue to s- support you and help you until we get uh, folks back in their homes and lives are rebuilt. Uh, I know how resilient the people of Louisiana are, and I know that you will rebuild again. Uh, And what I've seen today proves it. Uh, I want to thank all the first responders, the National Guard, all the good neighbors uh, who were in a boat uh, going around and making sure people were safe. Uh, showing extraordinary heroism and in some cases risking their own lives. Uh, Governor Edwards, the state of Louisiana, the city, the parish governments, they've all stepped up uh, under incredibly difficult circumstances. Uh, With respect to the federal response, over a week ago I directed the federal government 
to mobilize and do everything we could to, to help. Uh, FEMA Administrator Craig Fugate arrived here a week ago to help lead that effort. Uh, Secretary of Homeland Security Jay Johnson visited last week to make sure state and local officials are getting what they need. Uh, to give you a sense of the magnitude of the situation here, more than 100,000 people have applied for federal assistance so far. Uh, as of today, federal support has reached $127 million. That's for help like temporary rental assistance, essential home repairs, and flood insurance payments. Now, federal assistance alone is not going to be enough to make people's lives whole again. So I'm asking every American to do what you can to help get families and local businesses back on their feet. Uh, so let me just remind folks, uh, sometimes once the floodwaters pass, people's attention spans pass. Uh, this is not a one-off. This is not uh, a, a photo op issue. This is how do you make sure that a month from now, three months from now, six months from now, people still are getting the help that they need. I need all Americans to stay focused on this uh, because these are some good people down here. Uh, we're glad that the families I had a chance to meet are safe, uh, but you know they got a lot of work to do and uh, they shouldn't have to do it alone. That was President Obama in Baton Rouge on Tuesday. Uh, he pointed folks uh, who'd like to help, <clears throat> who'd like to support the effort there to www.volunteerlouisiana.gov. And uh, boy, what a difference uh, <laughs> in the response, frankly, between uh, George W. Bush after Katrina and President Obama after after this event. Obviously, you, you, you can't compare the two events as far as the 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 death toll and the havoc from Katrina, but uh, no drama, Obama. Uh, I will, I will miss him. I will miss <laughs> that. Uh, well, no matter well, who takes uh, the White House this uh, this year. Yeah, I, I do just want to note the irony, though, that at the same time that President Obama was visiting uh, Baton Rouge, down mm -hmm. in New Orleans, there was a lease sale held by the Interior Department's Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, a lease sale for offshore drilling yep. leases for oil and gas. Yep. So four people were arrested trying to stop that lease sale, but it is it is sort of schizophrenic that here the federal government is helping out people who are hurt by climate change, turbocharged mm -hmm. weather, and then we're also helping to exacerbate it by allowing more drilling. Yep, you, we sure are. Uh, which sort of brings me to my uh, next point here before we get to the break. Uh, you know, floods like this unspeakable disaster unfolding right now in India, taking hundreds of lives. This disaster in Baton Rouge, taking the lives of 13, costing millions, if not billions of dollars in recovery uh, for the 60,000 homeowners uh, affected. Uh, at a minimum there. All of that is just one reason why this year's presidential race, at least in my opinion, is so important. You know, if you talk to scientists, as as you and I both do, Des, uh, the continuing cost of inaction will be indescribable and, uh, and in far fewer years than I think many people understand. And that's why we discuss climate change so much on this program. That's why the idea of a climate change denier in the White House should be far more disturbing, in my opinion, than most people really understand. And at the same time, uh, one of the reasons we're in such a dire situation is because of our two-party system, which has prevented action that needs to be taken. And not just uh, Republicans 
As Desi notes, uh, not just Republicans, they are, of course, lock, stock and barrel in the pocket of big, deadly fossil fuel. But even Democrats, uh, you know, it is uh, Barack Obama's administration that is uh, selling offshore drilling leases right now. And remember, it was Democrats who kept the important uh, Waxman-Markey cap-and-trade bill from passing in the Senate back in 2000 and was it 2009, 2010? Back when they had the majority in the Senate. Yep. Now, that bill, by the way, passed in the Democratic House, Democratic-controlled House at the time, but coal state Democrats ended up blocking it in the Senate. So what to do? What should we what can be done about all of this? How can we go about cracking the seeming death grip of the two party duopoly system in this country or at least make one of those parties a bit more progressive than it is now? My guest, Matthew Roja, has been writing about this of late and he has a few ideas. We will talk to him next right here on the broadcast. Stay tuned. Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to help keep us going. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy. Stop by bradblog.com donate today. And thanks. always the same party anyway welcome back to the bradcast brad friedman from bradblog.com hey it could be worse i could have played miley cyrus's uh party in the usa so you're welcome i didn't do that um brad friedman from bradblog.com here the democratic and republican establishments have had a lock on national power for more than 150 years writes matthew matthew roja in his new piece at Salon this week, headlined, Tired of Democrats versus Republicans, Here's How to Fix It. He says, This is proved by the fact that the Democratic and Republican nominees are the most unpopular in recorded history, and yet it's still unlikely that any third-party alternative will poll at 15%, the minimum necessary to appear in the presidential debates. That alone, he writes, is a problem. Uh, adding that if we don't change the system soon, we will raise a generation that believes it isn't even worth fighting for. That said, he argues, one doesn't effectively fight for it by casting a futile vote in this election, neglecting this problem for, for four years and then throwing away another ballot during the next presidential contest. Really? Okay, so how does one go about fixing this seemingly broken system, particularly when voters are told that a vote for a third party is a futile vote, as Rosia does here, and and the equivalent of throwing one's vote away? And oh, yeah, what of the lesser evil paradigm, the idea that voting for the less evil candidate is still a vote for evil, as many uh, from the Bernie or Bus crowd, some of whom are vowing support for Green Party nominee Jill Stein this year, no matter what the cost, uh, as many of them will argue. To which, by the way, a listener not long ago commented uh, to me on Twitter or via email to bradcast at bradblog.com. I can't remember which. Uh, he said uh, a few weeks back that the lesser of two evils is still less evil. 
Well, that's a good point, too. And uh, less evil does seem to uh, seem like it might make sense right around now. Might actually be a good thing we could do with some less evil in this country. That's just me. In any event, here to talk about all of this today and what actually can be done to fix the often frustrating two-party duopoly system in the U.S. is Matthew Roja, author of that new piece at Salon.com this week. Matthew is a Ph.D. student in history at Lehigh University, my old stomping grounds, by the way, sort of, uh, as well as a political columnist. His editorials can be found at Salon, The Good Men Project, Mike, MSNBC, and various college newspapers and blogs. His article at Salon this week is Tired of Democrats versus Republicans. Here's how to fix it. Matthew Roja, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, you, you talk about some important ideas in this story, uh, as well as uh, another piece that was also published at Salon a few weeks ago. Uh, first, you note in your piece at Salon this week uh, that you have argued since your original candidate, Bernie Sanders, lost the nomination to Hillary Clinton, that you believe uh, progressives should unify behind Clinton because, as you write uh, in that piece a few weeks ago, that there is a moral case for voting for her at least this year, even if your politics might better align with a third party like the Greens or even the Libertarians. That case, you write, is centered around the argument that president uh, presidential elections aren't just about principles. They're about human lives. What do you mean by that specifically? I mean that when you juxtapose the possibility of a Clinton presidency with that of a Trump presidency, you can see how policies they would implement on issues ranging from immigration to taxes to business regulations would affect people directly. So when you say, I don't see much of a difference between Clinton and Trump, and therefore I'm willing to risk the election of someone like Trump, mm -hmm. you are minimizing or completely ignoring how his policies would impact real people in this country. Well, you also note uh, in, in your piece from late July that your, your perspective is skewed by your academic career as a historian. Uh, how so? What is it? And you, get, you offer a few examples from that, uh, from that late July piece, but let, let me let you run through some of those uh, uh, points that skews your perspective here. Well, it's because there have been a lot of elections, particularly in recent history, in which people didn't believe that there was much of a difference between the two major party candidates. And yet, when we look back at them retrospectively, we can pretty conclusively ascertain that there would have been considerable differences uh, had the outcome been the other way. So the examples I cited were, in 1968, the Republicans nominated Richard Nixon and the Democrats nominated Hubert Humphrey. And because the central issue that year was America's involvement in the Vietnam War, and because both Humphrey and Nixon were viewed as hawks, a lot of people on the left said it didn't make much difference which candidate won. But when Nixon became president, he implemented a lot of what would be considered today moderate, but in, those er in that era were, were considered more conservative economic policies. Mm -hmm. And most notably, he ultimately got us involved in the Watergate scandal by, you know, by authorizing or at least attempting to cover up that burglary. And none of those things would have happened had Humphrey been elected. I also used as a more recent example the election between George W. Bush and Al Gore in 2000, in which if Ralph Nader hadn't uh, run or if more people hadn't voted for him and instead voted for Gore, I mean, we wouldn't have had those massive tax cuts that predominantly helped the wealthy. 
Uh, Gore was an outspoken opponent of the Iraq War, so it's safe to assume that we wouldn't have been involved there. You can't ever know, obviously, with certainty how things would have been different, but there were drastic policy differences between Nixon and Humphrey or between Bush and Gore. And although people at the time didn't see those differences, in retrospect, it's very easy to identify how things might have gone differently had there not been so many people who adamantly insisted that those differences didn't exist or that they were inconsequential. And now I, I'm uh, with you, by the way, Matthew Roja, on the difference uh, that was ultimately shown between uh, George W. Bush and Al Gore. But I know that I'll get I'll get slammed here if I if I don't respond at least to your point that uh, you know while more votes for Al Gore might have made it easier for him to get in the White House, it wasn't really Ralph Nader's fault. It wasn't really you know he still Al Gore still a won the popular vote and b if the Supreme Court had allowed them to uh, count those ballots in Florida in 2000, we would have most likely found that Al Gore won in Florida as well. And I would respond to point A by saying that presidents aren't elected in the popular vote, they're elected in the Electoral College. Correct. And to point B, I would say that there are polls which have shown that had Nader either not run or encouraged voters to vote strategically. So, for instance, in swing states, they vote for Gore, and in states that are going to be solid red or solid blue, they vote for him, that Gore could have picked up not only Florida, but also New Hampshire. Um, so I'm not saying that Nader should be solely blamed. Um, in fact, I think the notion of blaming him is a little... It's almost offensive, because it mm -hmm. does imply that there shouldn't be third parties at all, and if you even dare challenge the establishment, then that is somehow disreputable. So I'm not blaming him individually so much as I'm identifying a mindset that, on at least those two occasions, 68 and 2000, had a very destructive impact. Fair enough. Uh, you write in your late uh, in your piece at, in late July at Salon, uh, quote, elections are about more than conflicting ideals. They're about hundreds. They're about the hundreds of millions of lives, both here and abroad, that will be shaped by who happens to occupy the Oval Office. Based on the facts of what Clinton and Trump would do in office, I cannot in good conscience vote against the interests of the people Clinton would help or for that matter disregard the lives of the people Trump would hurt. Now, I tend to agree, and, and by the way, that's that's true if only the case uh, made here were about climate change, which you don't speak to all that much in, in your uh, this particular piece, but I don't know how anyone who frankly has any understanding of the nightmarish science right now that is being faced concerning global warming, I don't understand how anyone could make a case for a presidential vote that could result in a climate change denier in the White House over these next... Uh, crucial four or eight years. But just to uh, challenge uh, your your uh, your vote in good conscience point a bit and, and move the issue up towards your piece this week at Salon uh, on how supporters of third parties could begin to take on the two-party duopoly, can a case be made as, you know, supporters of Jill Stein and the Green Party have made, for instance, that voting for Hillary Clinton, who is also seen as costing lives through advocacy of hawkish uh, neoliberal foreign policy over the years, uh, that that is something that they cannot do in good conscience. What do you say to folks who offer that argument, Matthew? Well, I agree that Hillary Clinton's hawkishness in the past is troublesome. That's one of the reasons I supported Bernie Sanders in the primary. But I guess if you want to go back to the examples I cited from 68 and 2000, there have always been issues 
in which certain candidates on the Democratic side were less than savory. I mean, you could look at Hubert Humphrey supporting the Vietnam War. The fact that they are that there is a flaw on those issues doesn't mean that there aren't significant areas in which one candidate is superior to the other. So taking Clinton as an example, yes, I am troubled by the fact that as Secretary of State, she seemed to try to push Obama toward more hawkish positions. I'm troubled by uh, her support for NAFTA during Bill Clinton's presidency. I am troubled by these aspects of her record. But at the same time, if, you know, on immigration reform, she actually has a very progressive and realistic stance. Um, she supports raising the minimum wage. She supports strengthening labor unions. She supports investing in infrastructure in a way that could create jobs. Um, and as you pointed out, her position on climate change is consistent with the scientific consensus, which cannot be said of Trump. So, yes, I agree that there are certain issues where I don't share her views, but I feel like it's almost simplistic to go from saying, well, I think Clinton made these mistakes in the past, to saying that means that, in general, her platform is without value, or in general, her beliefs are conservative, or what have you. Well, let's talk about your your new piece, Tired of Democrats versus Republicans. Here's how to fix it at Salon this week. You speak to the to the question of many progressives who are asking, how can we achieve progress with two major parties that are so flawed? You speak to folks in your piece from from both the Libertarian and the Green Party uh, for for this article. First, very quickly, what are the what are the general arguments that the Libertarians make for voting for their uh, for their nominee Gary Johnson in a year like this? Then we'll get to the Green Party and and then what to to do about all of this. Well, it's interesting because not only did I, I have the uh, privilege of uh, interviewing um, the chairman of the Libertarian Party, but I also have many friends who identify as Libertarians. Mm-hmm. And the thing about Libertarians is they are very consistent in applying a small government ideology towards these issues. They believe in maximizing human freedom by restricting government control, and I I would agree with them, and not insofar as their ideology itself, but when they claim that neither of the two major parties really even come close to accurately representing their views. And they've nominated a candidate, Gary Johnson, who has a respectable record as governor of New Mexico. Mm And I know it sounds like I'm being very positive about libertarians, so I just want to reiterate, I do not identify as a libertarian myself, but I do think it's important to have a sort of detached view Mm -hmm. in assessing what these uh, different ideologies stand for. Libertarians, the ones I've spoken to, the ones I've interviewed, the ones who have been colleagues of mine, are all very philosophically consistent, and they all feel that neither the Republican nor the Democratic parties are addressing the major issues of the day in a manner that is uh, consistent with their worldview. And what about the argument for uh, the Green Party argument for Jill Stein? Uh, well, let me get that argument. What's the, what's the case uh, in brief for, for Jill Stein as you uh, hear it in talking to the Green Party folks? Well, the argument that people who support the Greens and people who are Bernie or Bust uh, have been making to me, the argument that I've heard uh, from Scott McLarty and just in general is that the Democrats like to triangulate. Uh, They like to appeal to progressive values during the primaries, Mm -hmm. and then once they are out of the primaries, they move to the center in order to win over moderate voters, and then in office, they basically take left-wingers for granted and try to just get elected by going down that narrow middle path. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what Bill Clinton did during his presidency rather aggressively, 
I would say Barack Obama has been more staunchly progressive, but certainly has not been as left-wing as someone like Sanders or myself. Um, and the concern they have is that if we don't risk uh, costing the Democrats elections by posing, by presenting viable third-party alternatives, they're just going to keep taking us for granted. That they're that basically they they know that we have nowhere else to go, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's almost like an abusive relationship. Why do you think it is that, uh, given the popularity among uh, Democratic primary voters in any event for Bernie Sanders this year, it's it's a bit of a surprise that Jill Stein with the Greens is not doing better in four-way polling. Uh, Gary Johnson, he's pushing about 10 percent in many polls. Stein seems to be averaging more around the 3 percent mark in, in most of these polls. Uh, what do you attribute that to, uh, Matthew Rocha? Why, why, is she, why is that case not being uh, better made by the Greens. Um, well, this is this is sort of the realm of speculation. I right. can't say with certainty why. Mm -hmm. My personal theory is I think Bernie Sanders has been very persuasive among his supporters in, and has done a great job of explaining why this election is too big. And that goes into the thesis of my article, which is, or one aspect of the thesis of my article, mm -hmm. which is that uh, this Donald Trump is not your normal Republican opponent. This is a man who has actively courted the alt-right and other openly racist groups. His campaign platform is based on marginalizing Mexicans and Muslims. He has made viciously misogynistic comments. And in terms of his ideology, I, I couldn't even really tell you what I think he would do as president, because he has been wildly inconsistent. Uh, just within the last 12 months, to say nothing of throughout his career. Just within the last so, 12 hours, Matthew. But I, yes, yeah. go ahead. I take your point. <laughs> yeah, and so and so to me, this and I think, that, and this is what Sanders has been saying, and this is the point that I'm making. It's it's really a twofold point. First is that Trump is a threat. He is not George W. Bush or John McCain or Mitt Romney, all of whom I disagreed with, but all of whom, at least in terms of their characters. I didn't question were fit for the office. Mm -hmm. And the second aspect of it is, if you're going to try to empower third-party candidates, you shouldn't be indifferent, you know, for most of the four-year period, and then a few months before the general election say, oh, I don't like either of these alternatives, I'm going to vote third-party to make that stance clear. That doesn't achieve anything. It doesn't accomplish anything. And, and the way to really achieve this change is to be invested in the process constantly, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, even when it's not an election year, and work there to empower third-party alternatives. And I list various mm -hmm. ways that you can do this in my article. And then, in, when, when an election comes up, if more Americans who are dissatisfied with the two parties were actively engaged in the process early on, we might not have just Clinton and Trump. Johnson and Stein might be competing with them actively in the polls right now. And, and I want to get um, and I want to get in momentarily to some of those specific points of what you recommend that actually does happen, not just every four years, but all year long, uh, all the time that could change this paradigm. But b before we get to those specifics, I, I want to ask you, you write, I usually hear supporters of third party candidates chime in with how are we going to change that if we keep voting uh, for candidates from the two major parties? That's a good point, isn't it, Matthew? I mean, Democrats will always they will always say, yes, of course, this is a special year with Donald Trump. But the Democrats will always uh, likely say, 
you know, this is not the year to take chances. There's too much to, uh, too much at stake. The Supreme Court, everything else. They've been doing that for years. Uh, so isn't it necessary at some point to simply break that lesser evil paradigm cycle that, uh, you know, that you'll hear from the Bernie or Busters, the Green Party folks and so forth? It is. And, and that's and that's where this becomes tricky, because here's the thing. Democrats make that case for not only because it's self-serving, but because they're right. I mean, even if you look at Republicans who I agree are less dangerous than Trump, mm-hmm. like Bush, McCain, and Romney, while they may not have been as bad as Trump, there is a significant difference between men like that and candidates like Al Gore, John Kerry, and Barack Obama. And so when Democrats say there are important differences on important issues between ourselves and the Republican alternatives, and therefore you need to vote for us in this election, they have a good point. At the same time, the uh, Greens and other third parties also have a good point when they say that this argument is used to perpetuate the two-party duopoly. Mm. And so uh, that's I think yep. one of the things that I try to do with my writing is acknowledge when issues are nuanced and complicated, where there isn't a simple right or wrong answer. It's not as easy as saying, oh, we should just vote third party because there's no difference between the two major parties, or saying, oh, well, you know, you can't vote third party because, you know, every single election is so consequential that it would be disastrous. The reality is both arguments are right, and both have flaws. Uh, nuance. What, what 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 country do you think you live in, Matthew Rosa? Uh, <laughs> we we can't have we don't have that in uh, in our country in our presidential uh, elections anymore. All right. So how can voters leverage uh, third parties in order to move uh, the two major parties uh, at least a bit, if not more, and perhaps at some point make a real bid against them at the presidential level. What what needs to happen first? You hinted at it that it needs to sort of happen, uh, not just uh, you know when we're when we get to a presidential election, but all year round. What what do you see as the actions that need to be taken that actually practically can be taken? Well, the first and most important step is for third parties to be empowered at the local level. I mean, if you look at the Republican Party, it actually started out as a third party in the 1850s. Uh, it was a coalition of people who opposed the expansion of slavery into the newly acquired Western territories, and they began by winning offices at the local level, mostly in the North and the Midwest. Um, other third parties, though not as successful as the Republicans, have used that same model. And not only is it easier to win as a third party candidate when you're running for a local office, but local offices, municipal, gubernatorial, are very influential in terms of people's lives. And so if you want to create a libertarian set of policies that will help people, or a green set of policies that will help people, an effective way of doing that is to acquire power at the local level. In addition to that, people need to be aware of what obstacles impede third-party candidates when it comes to larger races, Senate, presidential um, such as how each of the states have very different laws regarding access to the ballot. Some of those states have laws that are so labyrinthine that it's pretty clear they exist in order to keep out third-party alternatives. Mm-hmm. Voters need to be aware of this, and they need to challenge it. They need to challenge the fact that our system is rigged to prevent third-party cha- um, alternatives from being viable. Um, they can protest. I mean, Scott McLarty did a great job of explaining how 
You know, you don't have to uh, watch a debate where there are only two candidates there. You can refuse to watch it as a way of making a statement, or you can refuse to participate in a poll where they only list Clinton and Trump and refuse to mention Johnson or Stein. And that way, there are. I'm sorry. No, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Please finish. Um, I mean, there are alternative. There are ways of doing this, but. You have to do it from the beginning. You can't just wait until the last second and then say, oh, I'm going to throw away my vote just as a sign of protest. You you, uh, you mentioned Scott McClarty. He's the media director for the Green Party. Uh, and, uh, you know, as I was reading that argument that, oh, you can uh, refuse to participate in these debates, uh, you know, walk away, refuse to take polls if they don't include the third party nominees. Doesn't that run the uh, the risk of, for example, Democrats uh, being able to ignore those people? Oh, they don't participate in the system anyway. Look, they're, uh, you know, they're radicals, they're crazies. Uh, we can just write them off, you know, when you walk away. Doesn't it run that risk, uh, McClarty's advice on that point? If it happens on a mass level, then that wouldn't be the case. Because that, and that's what I, the encouraging thing about the Bernie Sanders campaign is it sent a message that there are a lot of Democrats who are appalled at rising in, income inequality in this mm-hmm. country, who are appalled at the disproportionate power possessed by corporations and the wealthy, and they're going to hold the Democrats accountable. And even though Hillary Clinton is moving to the center, this left-wing faction of the Democrats, with which I identify, have the ability to make it clear that if, if she doesn't toe the line as president, if she doesn't listen to our concerns and address them in a meaningful way, then we might flee in 2020. And so while I agree that there is the possibility that they could write us off, That will only really happen if we don't mobilize on a larger scale to make this clear. And I think what the Sanders campaign demonstrated is that there are millions of Democrats, 13 million if I recall the number correctly, who are willing to make that kind of a statement. Now, I'm, uh, you mentioned one of the other things that can be done that the Green Party, I know, talks about a lot. And I am absolutely no fan of this, but instant runoff voting. Uh, I've I've talked about why I don't care for it. We have enough trouble adding one plus one in this country, frankly, before we add the complicated uh, math of instant runoff voting and the uh, computers that are required to do it. But since the Green Party has long called for it, mistakenly, in my opinion, uh, can you explain what it is and how that might affect the two-party duopoly system as you see it, Matthew? I think instant runoff voting, I happen to agree with the Green Party. I think it's a good idea because it provides voters with more choices. Um, I mean, basically, in terms of the system itself, um, it's a system in which voters rank their candidates in an order of preference, um, and then if a candidate doesn't receive a a majority, an actual majority Mm -hmm. in most cases, uh, then there's a second set of voting. So that's what happens in the gubernatorial elections in Louisiana, almost the system that exists in the Electoral College, because technically to win the Electoral College, you can't just win the most votes, you have to win an actual majority. The idea of allowing people to sort of rank their preferences and giving it more nuance, and I think that would be healthier, because right now our system is very black or white, Mm -hmm. Democrat or Republican, one way or the other. 
So I actually would respectfully disagree with you. I think instant runoff voting would be a very good idea. Well, and you don't have to be respectful about it at all. Some folks call it uh, ranked choice voting, and uh, I don't want to go down this path right now, but I would just uh, suggest, because I I appreciate, and I actually used to support instant runoff voting until I paid more attention to our our actual electoral system and how uh, terrible it is currently, and uh, talking to candidates who don't even understand how it is they lost in an instant runoff voting because it's so complicated. Uh, I I might suggest, uh, Matthew, you might want to take a look at approval voting, uh, which is a similar idea. Basically, instead of ranking the the candidates, you can choose yes or no for any or all of the candidates uh, as a uh, much more easy-to-oversee system uh, and uh, something that may accomplish the same thing. I've got one uh, uh, sort of final quibble uh, with with your piece. Several times you refer to, as long as we're disagreeing about stuff, Matthew, uh, you refer several times to voting for third parties as throwing away one's vote. Now, I I disagree with that premise, but I'll welcome your response here. My argument, a vote is not a bet. In other words, you don't win a prize for voting for the uh, for the candidate who wins. So setting aside what could you know, what could happen in an election like this if someone is dangerous to the country and the world as Donald Trump, you know, were, were to win. I'm somewhat offended by the idea that voting one's conscience is seen as throwing away, uh, throwing away a vote. I mean, those votes, whether in swing states or safe states like out here in California, send a message uh, effectively or not. Uh, and, and I don't think they should be seen as a waste, in my opinion. Your thoughts on that? I would say that, practically speaking, it is a waste because I'm looking at this in terms of the practical consequences. When you have an election where there is a candidate like Trump running Mm -hmm. and the opponent is someone like Clinton, and you vote for a third-party candidate instead of either allowing someone like Trump to become president or making it clear that you won't allow this to happen, Mm -hmm. then, in effect, you've decided you're not going to make your vote count, at least within within the context of that set of choices. Now, I don't think that in most situations voting for a third-party alternative is throwing away your vote. And I agree that it is, you know, if you're voting your conscience, that is respectable. And no one should be, certainly I wouldn't tell someone who's a libertarian that they need to vote for Clinton because their values are not the same as hers. But if you're talking about someone like a Bernie Sanders supporter, and I've actually written several articles Mm -hmm. discussing how Clinton is not that far removed from Sanders' inner ideology. He is definitely more left-wing than she is. She's a moderate liberal, and Mm -hmm. he's a more staunch liberal. But they're still on the same side. And in that situation, yes, I would consider it to be throwing away your vote, because there is a real threat out there, and you are basically refusing to stop that threat because as a way of just sort of in your own mind sending a you know having an individual protest moment let me let me just press you on that one point if uh, you know we're out here in California uh, which is uh, most almost certainly uh, going to go to the Democratic candidate, to uh, to Hillary Clinton. Uh, you're in Pennsylvania, which had until uh, a week or two ago been seen as a, a swing state. Now it looks like uh, 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 Clinton is holding a huge lead. Uh, but nonetheless, if, if you're in a state like that and it is Election Day, uh, doesn't it help the third party system? Doesn't it help to break up in some respect the two party duopoly, if only because they get more money? next time in the next election uh, if people were to vote out here in California, for example, for the uh, for the Green Party candidate, 
Doesn't that send a clear message that is not a waste of a vote? And I would return to the analogy from the 2000 election, where I'm sure that people who voted for Nader in New Hampshire and Florida thought that it was just going to help him out in terms of receiving matching funds as a result from his campaign and so on. But in the end, the consequence of their decision was the election of George W. Bush. And it was the nullification of their own ballot, because instead of assisting a candidate who, though not as liberal as Nader, was still ultimately, uh, still ultimately shared their values and philosophy, they wound up putting in office someone who did things that were diametrically opposed to what Gore would have done in office. So, I mean, Noam Chomsky wrote an essay recently that I thought was very intriguing, where he basically argued that it's, oh, it's, there is a difference between voting for a third-party candidate in a state like California, which is definitely going to go for Clinton, or, you know, a state like Texas, which is definitely going to go for Trump, and voting for them in a state like Ohio or Pennsylvania or Florida or North Carolina, which seem to be the major swing states in this particular election cycle. And, is that, that, and this goes back to what you were reading from my July article about how elections have consequences. They affect human lives. And, they, and when you vote for a third-party candidate, even though there are differences between the two major candidates that will have this kind of an impact, it is um, a waste of your ballot. Well, there's Matthew Roja playing the uh, Noam Chomsky card. You had to do that, didn't you, Matthew? Uh, You conclude your article at Salon uh, by writing something that I wholeheartedly agree with. You say, uh, if those who are thinking of voting for a third-party candidate want to act like good citizens, they will make sure that the non-racist, non-incompetent contender wins this time around for the safety, not just of America, but the world, and then get off their duffs and participate in empowering their preferred third party all year round. If millions of Americans do this in 2017, 2018, and 2019, Clinton can be held accountable in 2020 should she fail in her duties as president and not just by a Republican. For that to happen, you write, uh, we need to start giving a damn long before the next presidential election is underway. Huzzah. That's uh, from Matthew Roja's Tired of Democrats versus Republicans. Here's how to fix it. You can find it at Salon.com. And you can find Matthew at MatthewRoja.com. That's spelled R-O-S-Z-A. No, R-O-Z-S-A. Uh, sorry, I don't mean sorry. to correct you. No, but... thank you. R-O-Z-S-A. Okay, I think I got it. Uh, and also on the Twitter, at that uh, address, <laughs> at Matthew Roja. Thank you, brother. Really great uh, having you here, and uh, great even disagreeing with you on a few points. I hope you'll uh, come back and disagree with me more in the future. I hope so, too. Thank you. Matthew Roja. You'll have to figure out how to spell it yourself. I'm Brad Friedman. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with more Bradcast right after this. Stay tuned. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Welcome back. 
to your Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, you know, I, I, I think because there have been all of these polls over the past few weeks showing that uh, Hillary Clinton is just absolutely wiping out Donald Trump all over the map. Uh, you know, that a lot of people are a lot less concerned about uh, the way they vote this November. Um, I would caution them to be very careful. That's one of the reasons why we uh, cover so much about voting rights on this uh, on this program, about the problem with electronic voting systems on this program. I would also caution when it comes to those polls, they are changing. They are tightening up. The, uh, you know, Donald Trump's pivot may be a bo- whole bunch of phony baloney uh, and not even make any sense to his actual campaign. But you'll be shocked to learn people are buying it. Uh, in in this case, a poll just in uh, over the break here. I just see this coming in from Florida now. Uh, where Hillary Clinton has been leading in pretty much every poll for weeks and weeks. Now, Donald Trump has a two-point lead over Hillary Clinton in the battleground state of Florida, according to a new poll from Florida Atlantic University. This was uh, The survey was just released today. It shows the Republican presidential nominee leading uh, Hillary Clinton 43 to 41%. That's within the survey's margin of error uh, of error, but you know, we were seeing polls just a few days ago down in Florida showing Hillary Clinton leading in Florida over Donald Trump by almost 10 points. Uh, so this poll could be an outlier, we'll see, but also the national polls which had shown her so far ahead are also beginning to get uh, are, are beginning to tighten up as well. Of course, it is the state by state polls that make the difference, or at least the state by state voting that makes all of the difference. But you know, if you're sitting around, you know, thinking, "Oh, Hillary Clinton's got this one in the bag," um, not so fast. She leads. Uh, he leads her now in the state of Florida, which we we're talking about with uh, Matthew Roja in that last segment. And the effect that that had, oh, man, please don't let it come down to Florida again. Please, pretty please. <laughs> that would be terrible. Uh, but uh, in any event, uh, that is a poll that includes uh, Libertarian nominee Gary Johnson at 8% and 5% are undecided. Jill Stein is not even mentioned. And I don't know if it's because uh, the, the pollsters didn't ask about her or if because this uh, stub article on the poll from The Hill uh, which I said I just saw uh, doesn't mention her. Um, but uh, either way, she is, as I understand it, on the poll, on the uh, on the ballot in Florida this year. So I think any pollster should ask about all of the uh, candidates, major candidates who are on the polls, uh, who are on the ballots, in my opinion. And too often they don't. In any event, this is the first poll showing Trump leading Clinton in the Sunshine State since early July, according to Real Clear Politics. Both major party nominees have negative favorability ratings in the state, uh, and where Trump is winning over independents by a double-digit margin, 47% to 26%, and he has a similar edge with male and white voters. Clinton is leading among female voters and African Americans by nearly 50 points, and Hispanics by 10 points. But apparently, uh, the director of this poll says the race between Clinton and Trump among Hispanics in Florida is closer than it is nationally. 
do as she talk, chalks it up to the uh, to the Cuban vote. Trump's support among Latinos in Florida is helping him stay competitive. Really? Yeah, really. This poll was conducted. Uh, this is the most recent poll to come out of Florida, and it has a big sample: twelve hundred likely voters. Uh, so, you know, that poll I mentioned, uh, I think it was Monmouth a few days ago, showed her uh, le- uh, Hillary Clinton leading Trump by nine points there. It was a smaller sample size, however. So um, all I can say is pay attention. Uh, be very careful with the way that you vote this year. Um you know, don't be so uh, convinced right now, as I think a lot of Democrats are, that, oh, Hillary Clinton's going to run away with this. Uh, in the meantime, a, uh, a story that I've been trying to get to, I'll, I'll only be able to uh, point to this very quickly, but uh, a, a study that came out earlier this month, um, published in uh, JAMA, uh, found that low-income people living in states with Obamacare's Medicaid expansion are healthier than those in states without it. This uh Study looked at state residents in Texas, Kentucky, and Arkansas uh, three different times and found that uh, those who lived in those states in uh, Kentucky and Arkansas reported feeling uh, healthier than those in Texas where they did not expand Medicaid. Now, I know that a lot of people and the expansion was under the Obamacare bill, under the Affordable Care Act. And I know a lot of progressives out there and a lot of, you know, Green Party, Jill Stein fans are still mad about uh, Obamacare and about the Affordable Care Act, that it was not good enough. And I agree it was not good enough. We should have single payer health care. But if you talk to the people uh, who live in states where they have access to the uh, benefits of this bill, like Kentucky and Arkansas versus Texas, where they don't, where the Medicaid expansion didn't happen, they will tell you it is very different and their lives are very different because of it. In uh, Louisiana, since we were speaking about that earlier uh, today, um, a story uh, just came out mid-June, this story was, uh, came out two weeks after the first day that Louisianans could sign up for the expanded Medicaid program that was put in place by uh, Democratic Governor John Bell Edwards, who won the governor's mansion last year uh, after Republican Governor Bobby Jindal had uh, refused to expand Medicaid. Well, in just the two weeks since that uh, program was expanded, more than 200,000 people enrolled and were able to receive Medicare. So uh, or medical uh, medical care. You know, when people think that, uh, oh, it won't be bad, it'll teach them a lesson if Donald Trump is in charge, there are real people who are affected by who sits in that White House. And I'm glad you can afford uh, to, to live out four years of Donald Trump, but there are millions of Americans who can't. Please keep that in mind. All right, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Matthew Roja. By the way, that's spelled R O Z S A of Salon.com and of MatthewRoja.com. My thanks to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, you can download it anytime at Bradblog.com where you can leave comments. You can also send me email. I am Bradcast at Bradblog.com and you can find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at TheBradBlog. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.